So we're bringing to an end today, with the help of God, <laughs> our eight-part journey through the book of Esther. Uh, part one, two, seven are online, and to, today we're going to conclude with part eight. Doesn't Mason look handsome, and doesn't he do an amazing, uh, amazing, amazing job? You've just charged me. You got me charged right there. But um, yeah, part one through seven are online, and today we conclude with part eight. And Esther was a brave young Hebrew woman whose heroic acts, as you know, saved her, not only her, but her entire people from death at the hands of a crooked tyrant who we've called Haman the Horrible. Uh, who is Haman? Haman, uh, for, for, for your memory, Haman is the second most powerful person in Persia. He's the second only to King Xerxes. He was the number two. And if you remember, Haman had become upset that Mordecai had refused to bow to him. It says in Esther chapter 3, that all the king's servants at the king's gate used to honor him by bowing down and kneeling before Haman. Mordecai wouldn't do it. He wouldn't bow down. Haman was outraged. And it goes on to say, when, when Haman learned that Mordecai was a Jew... Haman hated to waste his fury on just one Jew. He looked for a way to eliminate not just Mordecai, but all Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And of course, Haman's bitterness ran very deep. He was, after all, a descendant of the Jews' arch enemy, the Amalekites. And that's why, of course, Mordecai refused to bow down to him. And so there was certainly no love lost between these two. So Haman, he cast a lot or a pur, from which we get the word Purim, which is the festival that the Jews celebrate to remember this whole story. So Haman cast a lot, or it's like throwing a dice, to get a lucky day on which to destroy the Jews, and that day was now fast approaching. And so Queen Esther, who was born for, finish the sentence, who was born for she sees this and she knows she's got to do something about it. She's now seeking to thwart the plan of Haman and save the lives of her people, the Jews. From what? From certain extermination at the hand of Haman. So we finished last time talking about pride. We talked about our pride. We talked about Haman's pride. And if you remember... We finish by saying this, there is no room for God in him who is full of himself. Oh, I like that too much. There is no room for God in him who is full of himself. And Haman, as we know, was certainly full of himself. Before the sun had risen over the horizon, remember, Haman the horrible had arrived at King Xerxes' court at King Xerxes' palace, eager to get the king's permission to impale Mordecai. Remember when it talks about the gallows and hanging and so on, it's not talking about hanging as perhaps we understand. They used to impale people. They would have a big pole and they would impale people on it. Everybody go, ouch. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's going to hurt. <laughs> it certainly does. So he wanted to, he, he turned up early in the morning to get the king's permission to impale Mordecai, the Jew, on the gallows that he had built. But Haman, unaware, of course, that the king, King Xerxes, had not been able to sleep through the night, 
coincidentally, remember this is a book of coincidences, just things seem to work out and things seem to turn around. The king had not been able to sleep through the night. And because of that, he read the history books that he had them read to him, and he became aware that the very Mordecai that Haman wished to kill had some nine years earlier saved his life by exposing a plot to assassinate him. And so when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And so, of course, Haman, in his arrogance and pride, thought it was him the king was speaking of. Because he thought, I'm awesome. Last night, I ate with the king and queen. And I'm invited back tonight. It must be me that the king is talking of. And you know, when I read this story, I, I, I love this. Think about it. While Haman was plotting Mordecai's destruction, God was plotting Mordecai's deliverance. I mean, you should, again, while Haman, you should say it like an American preacher. I think it sounds bad. While Haman, oh, it just sounds more, while Haman was plotting Mordecai's destruction, God was plotting Mordecai's deliverance. Mm-mm, glory, thank you. Starting to lose control. While Haman was looking how he can take Mordecai down, God was planning how to bring him up. While Haman was plotting how he was going to take him out, God was getting ready to bring him in. I want to tell you today, we serve a turnaround God. And to me, this whole event is like an outworking of their verse in Isaiah 54, verse 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, not just for those who Isaiah is speaking of, but this is the heritage for the servants of the Lord. Haman walked into the king's court, fully intending to lead Mordecai to the gallows, fully intending to name him and shame him, but God had different plans. We serve a turnaround God. Haman, of course, did lead Mordecai. He did end up leading Mordecai, but not in a possession of shame, but in a procession of honor. And as one commentary says, it says, Haman, who came to incense the king against Mordecai, ends up employed as an instrument of the king's favor towards him. Or I'll say that again. Haman, who came to incense the king against Mordecai, ends up employed as an instrument of the king's favor to him. In other words, we've heard this many times. But what men intend for evil, God can turn for good especially for those who love him, and the Bible says who are called according to his purpose. So I have no problem believing today that what God did for Mordecai, he can do for you. Uh, listen, not because, not because we're some modern-day Esther, not because we are some modern-day Mordecai, 
That's why I'm not putting myself in that place. I, I have no problem believing that God can do it for us as he did it for him. Why? Because we serve the God Mordecai served. Because we serve the God Esther served. And what God did for them, and my Bible tells me he is the same yesterday, today, Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what God did then, he can do today. But we serve the God of Mordecai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We serve a turnaround God. And maybe there are things in your life today uh, that you need to see turn around. Maybe there are things in your life and in your relationship or in your, uh, 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 just the things that you're dealing with that you need to see a turnaround. Well, I want to tell you what God did then. I, I, I want to tell you that things might be working out in a way that you didn't think. Listen, we serve a turnaround God. If he could do it for him, he can do it for us. Not because we are them, but because he is who he is. And my Bible says he is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to, come on somebody, according to his power that's at work within us and when Haman asked when the king asked Haman what should be done for the one the king delights to honor Haman asked for four things he asked for four things he asked for the king's robe one that he's worn he asked for the king's horse one that the king's ridden he asked for a royal crown and fourthly, he asked that a noble be entrusted to lead the said person in a procession of proclamation. We've got to understand when Haman was asking these things, what he was asking for was extremely bold. Notice that Haman did not ask for money. He did not ask for a reward. He was not, he, he was not asking for riches. He's like, no, don't, don't, don't give me, don't give me money for him this was much more about persian prestige haman wanted to wear the king's robe because of what it represents what does it represent it represents persian privilege it represents persian power it represents persian authority it represents persian dominion and as i was reading that i'm reminded of the words of jesus in Luke 20, verse 46, Jesus said, Beware. Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes. Or anyone for that matter who wants to set themselves up. Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feasts. Beware of such attitudes. Beware. And again, this is a challenge to us that we have to watch our own hearts. Our, our, our desire to be recognized, our desire to be liked, our desire to be known. It's so important that we watch our hearts 
And this, I, I, one of the things I've said as we've walked through this journey is to remember that Christianity is never to be about us. It's never to be about you. You are not the center. I am not the center. He is the center. Come on. Right, we've got to understand we never should we make Christianity about us. Again, I remind you of the words of John the Baptist when, when people were, he baptized Jesus and Jesus was over the other side of the river starting the Jesus church. And people who used to come to John were now going to Jesus. And they're like, John, are you upset with this? I mean, he's stealing all our church members. And what did John say? He said words that we should be so conscious of. He must increase. I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. It should never be about us, what God can do for me. Rather, God, what can I do for you? You've given everything for me. So God, I will give everything for you. For you are worthy of all praise. Come on, somebody praise Jesus in this place. He is worthy. He's worthy of all glory and worthy of all honor. Lord, may you increase, may we decrease. So we have to watch our own hearts. The long robes of the scribe represented, of course, the elite of academia. And, and of course, even today, long robes are, are worn when one passes out of university to show that you've achieved. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Please under, uh, understand me. But those robes mean something. And of course, for the scribes, they wore a certain type of robe, and that robe would re reveal their, their position, their, their status, their I, I, identity. They'd wear it to show how important one was. And of course, wearing the king's robe would reveal how important Haman was. In fact, all through the scriptures, garments, we, we, we don't underestimate the meaning of garments in scripture. All through the scripture, garments play a significant role. From Genesis to Revelation, we are reminded of the significant part that robes, garments, clothing, coats, and cloaks play in the Bible narrative. In scripture, the, the type of garments one wears say many things about the one who is wearing it. In Genesis, God himself makes a garment to cover man's nakedness and shame. Adam and Eve had hid from him. God covers them. In Genesis 9, verse 18, Noah's son, sons used a garment to cover a drunk Noah's nakedness and shame. Garments in Scripture have been used to deceive. In Genesis 27, Jacob wore his brother Esau's clothes to trick his almost blind father into giving him the blessing. Garments have great significance. Garments have divided families in Scripture. In Genesis 37, Joseph's father gave him a fancy coat, a coat of many colors. You're like, what's the big deal? Again, it showed his favor towards him. And even the fact that it's colors, you've got to understand, uh, when we were in Israel, we learned about the, the difference of what colors mean and different things and the difficulty it was to make actual color. We just dye it synthetic. We just, yeah, what color do you want it? We, it's so easy. But in those days, it was so hard to make color. 
even the color purple was like, where did it come from? We found out it came from, I, I believe it's like this kind of snail, this certain kind of snail that, uh, that used to crush it or whatever, and, and it's not very nice for the snail. If you're Sorry if you're a snail lover. But out of that, they would get a purple dye, and it, you had to get so many snails to get that purple dye that it was there. So colors were different. So when you see this kind of thing, these mean things, and so Joseph's father gave him a coat of many colors, which caused his brothers to get so jealous they wanted to kill him. In Exodus 39, God gave instructions for specific garments for what the priests would wear who would enter the temple. And when Elijah calls Elisha, he does so by throwing what? Throwing his mantle. What's his mantle? That's his cloak taking his cloak and throwing it on Elisha. And of course, it was a particular type of mantle, one that prophets would wear, to, that wear and as they wore them, they, they would be recognized as prophet, prophets. What were they? These were all symbols of identity, power, position, and authority. Just as clothes are today, just as uniforms are. There are different, uh, a few policemen in the church, and I know that after the service, if they wanted to stop the traffic to let you out, to make a special privilege for the church, if they walked out in their civvies and went out and put their hand up like this, nobody's going to stop. Right. People are just going to keep on driving. But I know if they put their uniform on, if they put a certain type of garment on, they'll be able to stand outside, and when they put their hand up, hopefully people will stop. <laughs> If they don't, they get a nice, nice ticket. But it's not them, it's what they're wearing. It's the uniform that brings it. It's the garments that they wear that give them that authority, that identity, that so, so we can understand the power of that. As a firefighter, I understand this. In, in firefighting, there's, there's certain ranks and there's certain things. We look for different colored helmets, and depending on the color of the helmet, will, will tell me as a firefighter if I have to listen to that person or not listen to that person. Depending on the, I don't know if it's a black helmet, it's a national commander. If it's a silver helmet, it's like the incident or regional commander. I don't know if it's a white helmet, it's a, the chief. If it's a, uh, with, with two stripes on if it's, a, if it's another white helmet with one stripe, that's a deputy chief. If it's a yellow helmet uh, 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 with two stripes or whatever, I know who to listen to. If it's a green helmet, it's a recruit. No one listens to them. <laughs> but clothes mean something. Garments are significant. In Scripture, Luke chapter 8, verse 43, Jesus' garments when touched by a hemorrhaging woman brought healing. And of course, there are not just physical garments. In Isaiah 61, verse 3, it says, The garment that God has given us, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And I want to tell you, you might be walking through heavy stuff right now. You might be going through things that are weighing, weighing you down or getting you down. But I want to tell you, there's a garment you can put on. About four of you. I want to tell you there's a garment you can put on that can break through 
that heaviness. Haman is told by the king, do all you have said for Mordecai the Jew. Do all that you have said for Mordecai the Jew. And as Mordecai ends up being led through the city by Haman, as I read this story, we actually end up with a beautiful picture of God's atoning work for us. We have a man, Mordecai, who was, listen, searched out by a king. Not only that, the king covers the man who was, remember, if you remember the story, he was covered in sackcloth. He was wearing sackcloth. He was in mourning. Sackcloth is another garment that represents mourning. It represents sadness. Mordecai was covered in sackcloth. When he'd heard about what Haman had planned, he was wearing sackcloth. Yet the king reaches out to him and covers him with his royal robe. What does he do? He gives him beauty for ashes, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. How does this help us for today? Well, the truth is we have a king. Not just a king, but the king of kings who allows us, who allows us who wear the sackcloth of sin, who deserve nothing. The king of kings allows us to wear his royal robes, robes of righteousness. They're not our robes. We can never wear them. We fall so far short of the glory of God, but he gives us his robes. We deserve the sackcloth we wear, but God himself gives us, the king of kings, gives us his robes of righteousness, not our righteousness. Our righteousness is like a filthy rag before a holy God, yet he gives us, we who do not deserve it, his robe of righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. He takes our ashes and exchanges them with his beauty. He takes our heaviness for a garment of praise. And it's nothing that we have done. This is the beauty. We, are, we were searched out by a king, even though we were not looking. My Bible says we did not choose him, but he chose us. And because of that, because of what the king has done, our position in him is secure. Because it's nothing we have done, but everything that God has done. That's what the Bible says, our lives are hidden. In Colossians 3.3, 3, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And so I want to say to every one of us today, brothers and sisters, I want to speak to every one of the family of God today, those who are watching online, wherever you are, in whatever country you're in. I want to remind you today to take off your sackcloth. Take off your sackcloth. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, you know it. 
When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Bible tells us that as he came out, he was still bound up with his grave clothes. In John 11, verse 44, he was still bound up with the garments of death. And said, he that was dead came forth. Jesus called Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. Bound hand and foot with grave clothes, the garments of death. And Jesus saith unto him, this is good King James. And Jesus saith unto him, loose him and let him go. I want to remind us here today, we like Lazarus, have been given new life. But I want to tell you, I've been a Christian a long time. I've been a minister a long time. Too many people are still wearing the old grave clothes. Too many people are still bound up in that which God has taken care of. And I want to tell you today, you are not just an old sinner saved by grace, but you are the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin, my favorite scripture. You know, I've said it a million times. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become what? Not just old sinners saved by grace, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Nothing that we have done, but everything that He has done. Jesus told the friends of Lazarus, loose him. Loose him. And sometimes we, like Lazarus, need other people to help us. And I want to help you today and remind you to take off the old and put on the new. It's time to take off fear and put on courage. It's time to take off unforgiveness and put on love. It's time to take off sin and put on His robe of righteousness. It's time to put on his mantle. It's time to remove that sackcloth that weighs you down and wear the garments he has prepared for you. Oh, I hope you got that this morning. We have every opportunity to walk out of this place here today free. Doesn't mean we don't have stuff that will go down and we'll have struggles and everything will go rosy. It's just understanding who we are in Christ and what He has accomplished for us. You're not just an old sinner. You're a new creation. I'm going to close this out quick and wrap this up. After Haman led Mordecai through the streets, when he had finished, he ran home and in shame. Of course, the day before he was boasting, now to this day, he's getting a roasting. His wife's a resh. I mean, she's not helping things. And he's telling his wife and advisors how, how bad the day went. And they're, they're like, you're, you're doomed. It's over for you, uh, 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 Haman. And before he can do anything else, it's time to go to the queen. The eunuchs knock on the door and, and, and say, come on, you must go for dinner right now. And so he goes off to the dinner with the king and the queen to the banquet in the queen's chambers. And after the banquet, the king asked Esther again, 
Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases you, your majesty, grant me life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage and left his wine. He always leaves his wine. I don't know why they've made for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch. In the King James Version, it says the bed. He was literally falling onto Esther's bed where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up for the one who helped the king. The king said, Hang him on it. And so they hanged, or rather impaled Mordecai. Everybody go, ouch. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. What happened next? Well, Mordecai was given Haman's position and became the second most powerful man in Persia. I want to tell you, we serve a turnaround God. And they, I'm going to say, lived happily ever after because I've got to end this series somewhere and I've got to stop it somewhere. And of course, you can read it for yourself, the rest of the story, if you desire. It's not for the faint-hearted, let me tell you. But this deliverance through Esther's bravery saved the Jewish people from certain destruction. And so every year to this day, the Jewish people remember the deliverance with the Feast of Purim. They feast, they fast, they wear masks, wear costumes, they give gifts, they remember their deliverance. In fact, the men and boys, as they read through, they always read through the book of Esther on the Feast of Purim. And the boys always carry with them rattles. You know, those rattles just spread. And what happens is whenever the name of Haman is read out, because Haman represents evil. And so whenever the name of Haman is read out, before they blot it out, they and the men stamp their feet and they shout whenever the name of Haman, so you can't, you can't hear it. And they actually write the name of Haman on the bottom of the soles of their feet in chalk. And so when they stamp it, so his name will be blotted out for he represents evil. His name will be blotted out from the face of the earth. It says, just a little aside there for you as we come to a close. But what is this book about? Oh, many people have said many things. Many Christian people have said many things. But I, I like what this Jewish person says one Jewish writer sums it up this way. They say in this story there are no outright supernatural miracles, but rather many unrelated circumstantial details that come together to save the Jewish people. And so it is, and so it is not a story of God's supernatural involvement, like Exodus from Egypt, 
that involved the 10 plagues, the splitting of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock. Now, this is a story of natural events playing out in a way that is evident that God's hidden hand is directing the story and events and ensuring a happy ending. And for me, I want to say to you, this story reminds us not to forget that God's hidden hand is at work in your life and in my life as we walk through the everyday common events of just our daily journey. May we remember God's always at work. And therein lies the end of the book of Esther. Thank you very uh, much. We've done it. We've done it. You know, as I close, let's bow our heads for a moment. You need to get right with God today. Do you know who maybe you've come to church, maybe for the first time or whatever, maybe you're watching online, but you know right now that you need to get right with God. God's hidden hand is at work on your heart right now. The Bible talks about the fact that He knocks on the door of your heart. Maybe He's knocking on the door of your heart right now, and you know, maybe you've been coming to church for ages, but you've never given your life properly to Jesus Christ. Or maybe you've walked away or whatever, and you're saying, man, I need to sort myself out. I need to get right with Him. And remember, this is not about you doing something in the sense that there's nothing you can do to get right with God. It's a work of God. We all fall short. We've all, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But today, you, you, you know that you need to get right with God. And in a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer. And that prayer is one that, that says, Lord, just I, I'm going to submit my life to you. I, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. It's not about how bad you are. It's about how good God is and surrendering to His calling at the moment. Maybe the King is searching you out at this moment that you might give your life to Him. Maybe there'll be ones who need to recommit to Him. This is that moment. With every head bowed and every eye closed, just between, no one looking around, this is just between you and God. If you're here today and you're saying, Pastor, I want to be included in that prayer. Wherever you're sitting, right now, I just want you to stick your hand right up. You're saying, I want to be, in thank you. Thank you down the back here. You're just saying thank you over to the side here. You're just saying, I need to get right with Him right now. Come on, who else? You know you need to get right with God. Let's not leave this place. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's all pray in a loud voice together, every one of us as we join in prayer with those who have raised their hand. Lord Jesus, I come to you today, a sinner in need of a Savior. Today, I commit my life to you. I submit my life to you. Be my Lord and my Savior. Today, I turn from my sin and turn towards you. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. This I ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Let's put our hands together for those who said yes to Jesus. Amen. Would you stand as I pray a prayer of blessing over you? And just remember, if you need specific prayer for anything, there's a prayer station over there to the side that you can get prayer for anything. My friends, I'm speaking to you as new creations. 
The old is gone. The new has come. God is at work in your life. Receive this blessing right now in Jesus' name. Put your hands out. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. And everybody said, Amen. Let's say.